As our kids are heading into Children's Church, I invite you, if you do have your Bibles with you, to take them out and turn them on and join me, if you will, in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. If you're our guest here this morning, I just want to say a special welcome to you. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, My name is Will. I get the privilege to serve as pastor. And uh, on your way in, hopefully you got a uh, a gift bag, and in that gift bag is a uh, a Connect card, or if you didn't have one of those, then hopefully in the chair back in front of you there is one of those. Feel free, please, to fill that out and leave it uh, in your seat when you leave so that we can collect those, and that we might know how we can better communicate with you and connect with you in ministry. We have been together uh, for the last few months working our way slowly but surely through the book of Galatians. And Galatians, we believe, is probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest, New Testament document, first of the letters that Paul wrote. And Paul is writing to a church, or, a series, or actually a collection of churches throughout the region of Galatians that are struggling with something that I think you and I are pretty familiar with today. We live in a world of mixed messages, don't we? We hear one thing from one TV station and news channel. We hear another thing from another TV station and news channel. This one with its agenda, that one with its agenda. And we live in a culture where we just wish that there was somebody that we could know beyond a shadow of a doubt who would step forward and say, these are the facts, and so this is how you should act. This is what you should do. And someone that we could then know without a shadow of a doubt, we can trust that individual and we can trust that individual's leading. That's what Paul is facing as he is writing to the Galatian churches. Paul planted these churches probably on his first missionary journey. And after he moved beyond them to continue planting churches in other regions, some false teachers had come in and they had begun preaching something that was a... a, diluted and a a dangerous twist on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is really pretty hot in this letter as he is, is angry about the threat to the eternal security of these Christians that have come with these false teachers. And so if you'll remember, just by a way of brief review, Galatians chapter 1 and 2, Paul is establishing his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right? We wish that there was somebody in our world today that would just stand up that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. They are an authority that we can trust beyond a shadow of a doubt, and what they say is what we will follow. Paul spends the first two chapters establishing his authority as an apostle and the authority of the gospel message that he originally preached to the Galatians. This is the first major section of Galatians. Chapters 3 and 4, Paul then reminds them of that message that he preached to them. And he begins to define, if you will, he lays out the theological argument of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'd been in that section of Galatians for quite some time. Last week we took a break to focus on the, the Lord's Supper. And this week we move into what is the final major section of Galatians, chapter 5 and chapter 6, where Paul now begins to give instruction. Paul's letters always follow a pattern. The pattern is Paul reminds us of who we are. It's what theologians and and, um, Greek scholars call the indicative mood. The indicative declares this is who you are. And Paul spends time reminding us of who we are And then, and only once he has reminded us of who we are, he then instructs us into what we're to do. Because who we are determines what we do. 
What we do doesn't determine who we are. Because we can live falsely. And so we're moving out of the section where Paul has declared, you have been set free in Christ. Amen? He reminds us of the gospel. You're set free. Now live free. Which is what we've titled the entire series. Set free, so live free. Paul wants there to be no confusion as he confronts the mixed message. Because if we're living in a world of mixed messages, then we're paralyzed and we don't know what to do. Just yesterday, my boy, uh, Bryant was playing a basketball game, and it came down to the last couple of minutes of the game. And there's two minutes and ten seconds left in the game, and they were getting thumped, by the way. Two minutes and ten seconds left in the game, and their, their coach had called a timeout. And within the last two minutes of the game, it's the only time in the entire game when you are allowed to full-court press, which means you can defend the other team at any place on the court. Everywhere else, you've got to wait and you've got to get back. But at the last two minutes, you're allowed full court press. Well, there's two minutes and 10 seconds left on the clock. And the coach was confused about the time. And so after the timeout, he was wanting his players to get right in there, get up on it, and full court press. And so he's, he's yelling at the team. He's encouraging them, get down here, get uh, full court press, everything. And the refs are on the other side blowing the whistles saying, coach, coach, coach. There's 10 seconds before they're allowed to do that. And the players are sitting there going, oh, who do I listen to? Do I listen to the coach? Do I listen to the referee? What, what's, what's going on? So finally the ref blew his whistle as the authority and said, coach, this is the way that it is. And it was only after the message was made clear by the one who had the authority to do so that everybody was able to get in line. And so Paul wants to address that mixed message in these verses. Look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. And we'll read from 2 down through verse 12 this morning. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the clear message of grace, faith, repentance. I thank you that the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not difficult to understand. But I confess, Heavenly Father, that it is so difficult to live. So I thank you for the reminder, and I pray not only for this week, but for the weeks ahead as we now look to how we are to live by faith, how we are to live free. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would hold fast to our hearts and that you would let us walk in faith, not in ourselves, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. And amen. 
the message of these verses is really pretty simple. With all of the moving abound and everything else, Paul's message, and speaking kind of in a contrary way, is anything but faith alone in Christ alone leaves us hopeless and condemned. It's really the whole message of these verses, and really the whole message of the entire book of Galatians can really be summarized in that. Anything but faith alone in Christ alone will leave you hopeless and condemned before the Lord. He has this moment in this letter where any type of, and I'm still growing in this, any, any type of good movement, sermon, uh, speech, anything like that, there are moments where you really get heavy and it requires people to really think through. And that's when you're digging into some deep theology, doctrine, some other things. But in that, as, as you're exercising your brains, there's got to be a moment where you just get a chance to just lean back and breathe a little bit. And that's the purpose of illustrations and other things. You get to lean back, you get your brain gets to take a break, and Paul has some moments like that. But then there are other moments, not where you're doing a lot of heavy lifting and not where you're just resting back or something, but where you're leaning back. But there are moments when you've got to lean in. Paul is having a lean-in moment, brothers and sisters, because he says the opening word from this is, look, listen, hey, if, you, if, if I've lost you, Come back in right here, right now. I need you to see something. It is a lean-in moment, and Paul speaks very clearly and very plainly, and for the first and the only time in the entire letter, Paul brings up what really is the main issue. He's dealt with what's underneath the foundation of the main issue, which is a faith in myself instead of a faith in Jesus. But the way that that is manifesting itself, the way that that is showing up in the teachings of these false uh, apostles, these false leaders, is this question of circumcision. So Paul steps back from the theology and he names the manifestation of the false teaching, which is circumcision, a medical procedure. Just try to be as clear as I can, but it's cautious as I can as well. Circumcision is a medical procedure that marked men as members of the Jewish religious community by removing the foreskin, the excess skin from their genitalia. Okay? It was a medical procedure that was performed on Jewish boys from the moment, uh, from early on in their life. I think about eight days. But at the same time, this was performed, that's not what Paul is addressing. What Paul is addressing is the practice as it pertains to adult men who are converting to Judaism. And so the ultimate sign that I am embracing this entire system of faith, my declaration of my trust in this religious system as a man was to allow myself to be circumcised. So Paul's not merely just addressing the medical process. Instead, what Paul is addressing is the declaration of faith in the law that circumcision was. Paul actually says later on in these verses, in verse 6, circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's not about the physical act. It's about what the act is declaring. And it's a declaration that my faith is quite literally in my flesh, in myself, and not in Jesus Christ. And so his question, though, is not that these false teachers are calling them to only trust in themselves and not trust in Jesus. What they're actually doing is they're blending the both, and it is this, this 
perverted way of saying my faith is in some combination of Jesus and me. Speaking very plainly, what Paul condemns vehemently is this message that is still around today that says Jesus plus something equals my salvation. And what Paul says instead in these verses, just simply stated, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. What do I mean by nothing? It means damnation. It means condemnation. It means a turning away at the judgment seat. And there are false messengers who have come to the Galatian churches with this false message that says Jesus plus you equals salvation. And Paul says, no, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. He says, if you accept circumcision then you have chosen to attempt to be justified by the law. And in doing so, you're obligating yourself, he says in these verses, to follow all of the law, which he's already said is impossible. You can't do it, and that's not what the purpose of the law was ever to be. And so when you put your faith and trust in the law, you've fallen away from grace. Because, brothers and sisters, listen real closely. When we decide that we can add anything to Jesus, what we've said is Jesus is not enough. To say that Jesus plus anything is to say that Jesus needs something. That Jesus is life, that Jesus is death, that Jesus is resurrection, that Jesus is ascension, that Jesus is constant ministry in the presence of the Lord to advocate for us his future coming, that that is not enough. It's to declare that Jesus is inadequate. And such a declaration is a defamation of the gospel. It's a defamation of the character of Jesus Christ. It is hostile to the gospel itself. It's hostile to faith and to grace. So when we attempt to accomplish in our own strength by the adherence to some religious rules and rituals to the law is actually a hostile message of rebellion and rejection against Jesus himself, which is why Paul says when you choose to put your faith at any level in the law, Apart from Christ or in addition to Christ, you're cut off from grace. You have cut yourself off from grace, and Christ is of no advantage to anyone who chooses the path of the works of the law. And so again, we can see why Paul is so urgent, why Paul is so passionate, why Paul is so hot even in these verses as he addresses this false message because this false message is coming from false messengers who Paul says stand condemned. He says that they will bear the penalty of, the, of their troubling in verse 10. He says that these ones who are preaching this message, they're hindering the Galatians from running well. When I was a freshman in high school, in the gym class, we were required, um, one of our tests at the end of the semester was the run test. And you had to be able to run, I think it was a mile around the gym. And so we worked our way up to that throughout the whole semester. We would run a few laps uh, every Friday, getting ready for the run test to be able to run a mile at the end of the semester. And I had a friend of mine, Alan. Alan was almost my height, and, and he had a gait that was about the same as me. And Alan and I just, we would run together. And there's something about being able to run side by side 
But Alan and I never really fell into that pattern. We knew each other so well. We, we ran so well, even in that moment. What we found out is that we ran better when we just found this seamless way of alternating with him in front and me in front and him in front and me in front. And if he was in front of me and I noticed, okay, we're running and this mile is getting longer or whatever it is, and I noticed that he was slacking up and his pace was changing or something, I would just move to the side and move in front of him, and then I would set the pace for a while, and then he would set the pace for a while. And it's running well together that pulled us forwards. What always messed us, messed us up, though, was when there were others that weren't running at the same pace. When there were running, others that were running faster or there were others that were running slower and we had to move or we had to divert or heaven forbid, there was somebody who stepped in front of us and messed everything up. What Paul is saying that these false teachers have done is that they have stepped in. They have cut in on the race that the Galatians were running so well. They've caused them to stumble. And their message has messed everything up because their message, he said, is not from Christ. It's not from the one, Paul says, who called you into this relationship. And since it's not from Christ, it's from somewhere else. It's from someone else. And therefore, it is hostile to the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says they will bear the penalty. They will be judged for this because isn't it Jesus himself who says in Matthew chapter 18, whoever causes one of these little ones, those who have put their faith in Christ, to believe, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. False teachers, one who cut in and who hinder the growth and the faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ to believers deserve to have a millstone, Jesus said, fastened around their neck and thrown into the depth of the sea, and that would be a mercy compared to what they're going to receive. So these false teachers stand condemned. The end of their path is hopelessness, and all those who pursue that same path with them and are following with them are on a road of hopelessness and condemnation. And so Paul is calling them back, calling them away from this false message, calling them away from a trust in themselves. That's why Paul is almost vulgar in verse 12. As he says very bluntly that the message of circumcision that these false teachers are declaring is as fruitless as the pagan practice of castration of their worshipers. And Paul says, I wish that they would just go all the way. If they're going to be this pagan, just go ahead and be pagan and just castrate yourselves. Because that's how fruitful this actually is. And so contrary to the message that says Jesus plus nothing or anything equals nothing, Paul plainly teaches that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus needs nothing. We can't add to the work of Jesus Christ. It is perfect and it is complete in all of its ways. And so Paul calls us away from trusting any and every form of, of action or faith in ourselves. And he calls us to faith alone in Christ alone. Not anything else, not any, any effort of our own. He calls us to cease striving in our flesh to do what's already been done for us by Jesus. Instead, he calls us to trust and to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He calls us to faith alone, in Christ alone, because that is the only source of our hope and security. 
The only source of, our, of your hope and your security is a recognition that Jesus has done absolutely everything that is necessary. Jesus alone. The struggle that you and I have, though, when it comes to this practice of faith, is that faith is kind of one of those abstract principles. And we have a hard time getting our hands around it and getting our minds and our hearts around this broadly abstract principle. So Paul, I think in these verses, gives us some practical insight into this faith in Christ that he's promoting. As he calls us to faith alone in Christ alone as the only source of our hope and security, Paul identifies this faith. And he says, first off, he calls us to a faith that's spiritual. And by spiritual, I don't mean small s spiritual. I mean capital S spiritual. Because he says, if you look there in verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul says this starts with the Spirit capital S, Spirit. Faith in Christ is a faith that comes from the Spirit. Paul has repeatedly throughout this letter introduced us to the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our salvation all the way back in chapter 3. As chapter 3, remember, he, he peppers them with those rhetorical questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says again, does he who supplies the Spirit to you work miracles among you by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you being, who who began um, your faith, are you being perfected with works of the law or by hearing through faith? And the Spirit, the Spirit, capital S, the third person of the Trinity, is the evidence of the true gospel. His presence in our life, His presence in our community, His working in our hearts and in our lives to lead us. It's through the Spirit by faith. And we talked about the ministry of the Spirit, and we'll see more about the ministry of the Spirit and the evidence of the Spirit. But if you'll remember, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to do what? Is the Holy Spirit here to get glory for Himself? Be cautious, brothers and sisters, around any ministry that makes so much of the Spirit that you never hear about Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit's ministry is always, Jesus said, the Spirit will come and the purpose and the ministry of the Spirit will be to what? To declare me. The Spirit is always pointing us away from himself and back to Jesus. To look to Jesus. He is the Spirit of Christ. And though he is the third person of the Trinity, and he does deserve our affection and our love and and, and a relationship uh, with him as we walk by the Spirit, as we will see, the ministry of the Spirit is constantly turning us back to Jesus. And so we can know that when we hear the voice that says, try harder, do better, be better, why can't you get this thing together? The spirit of condemnation and the spirit that looks at you, that voice inside of your heart and inside of your head, That's not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is never going to point you to yourself except to show you how much you need Jesus. And so when you hear that voice in your life and when you hear that voice come out in messages and spirits that says, look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, turn from yourself, turn from the world, turn from dependence upon anyone else and find in Christ the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most fulfilling relationship in all of the universe... That's the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. And we'll see next week that the evidence of the Spirit and this spiritual faith is one that rejects contention and division and infighting, but instead 
fuels love and sacrifice, calls us away from behaviors and to virtues and character traits that then result in behaviors. Paul doesn't merely call us to a faith that's spiritual. Paul calls us to a faith that waits eagerly. One of the telltale signs of true, genuine faith is this unexplainable, as far as the world understands, hope. This confident assurance that everything that God says is true is true and that everything that God promises will come. Regardless of anything else, and no matter what else the world might say or we might say, faith is defined by an eager waiting for all of the promises of God to come true. We're not a culture that likes to wait. We were without a microwave for a few days a couple weeks ago, and we didn't know what we were going to do with ourselves. Because our microwave blew up. And all of a sudden, we were having to use the oven, and the oven was just taking too long. And we wanted a microwave. It's interesting that we're unwilling to wait upon the Lord, because I'll be real honest, we don't know what waiting is. We think that waiting is just boring. It's this sitting back on our haunches and our hands. But in reality, as you start looking throughout Scripture, you see that waiting upon the Lord is something that comes all the way through Scripture. And Arthur Evans says this about this. When it talks about wait throughout Scripture, we see it is defined as an attitude of a soul that is Godward. He says it implies a listening ear, a heart responsive to the wooing of God, a concentration on the spiritual fact of the spiritual faculties upon heavenly things. He says that throughout Scripture, it's, decided, or it's described as an eager anticipation and a yearning for the revelation of truth and love as it is in the Father. And he quotes some scripture about that. But listen to those action words. It's a heart that's listening. It's an ear that is attentive. It is a concentration that is looking towards the Lord. It's a patient faith, but it's something that is eagerly anticipating. Waiting upon the Lord is active, not passive. It's looking and it is constantly living with a God-centered, Godward mindset. And we need not be afraid of it. This past week, I had the privilege to go to the Tennessee Baptist Convention, and Sunday night, last Sunday night, it was a night of worship. And Dr. Robbie Gallaty, who pastors Long Hollow Baptist Church um, down on the other side of Nashville, was the keynote speaker. Some of you are familiar with what's going on and the revival that's taking place at Long Hollow Baptist Church, but we, they were celebrated by the Tennessee Baptist Convention this past week because they are uh, the second church in the history of Tennessee Baptists to baptize over 1,500 people in one calendar year. Once under the previous pastor before Dr. Gallaty, but even over the last year, they've baptized almost 1,600 people. And Dr. Gallaty talked about where that began. Where that began was 10 months of him learning to wait on the Lord and sit upwards of hours in silence and in solitude to develop this sweet relational dependence upon the Lord. Looking for him, listening for him. But the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, you and I, 
we struggle sitting quiet for five minutes before we've got to turn a radio on or we've got to turn a TV on as a background noise or anything else. But sitting still and alone in silence and solitude in the presence of the Lord with your mind turned towards the Lord, that is a place of power. That is a place of where we grow in dependence upon Him. But we've got to have the willingness and the eagerness to put our faith in practice in that way that we wait in the presence of the Lord for the Lord. If we want to see a transformation in our homes, in our lives, in this church, where it's going to begin is not in us programming better, doing better, acting better. It's going to come in having a faith in God that is willing to wait upon God to do. Now, that doesn't mean that we sit back and be lazy and do nothing. But it means that God goes first. And we have to be willing to ask ourselves in my home, in my life, in my church, in in anything and everything, is God in front of me or am I in front of God? And the only way that we are going to be able to do that is if we are willing to wait in the presence of the Lord because that is where we experience the hope of righteousness. Paul's not just merely waiting on some manifestation of the Holy Spirit. He is instead, he is looking beyond this life to the ultimate hope, the confident assurance of God's promises that we will one day receive final confirmation, a final command, a final word from God. You are righteous. Welcome home. Paul talks about our righteousness past tense, our righteousness present tense, but ultimately we will not experience the full promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ until we are in the presence of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. And so we are waiting eagerly, patiently for the Lord. The last thing that we see, and we won't spend a lot of time in this because we'll dig into it in the next couple of verses, or in the next couple of weeks, because Paul introduces what is going to become the dominant theme of the rest of the book that Paul calls us to a faith that is active in love. Verse 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith looks like something. Faith looks like a life characterized by love. Because when we are putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone and we receive from Christ alone what only God can give, then we receive the love of God. And the love of God poured into our life is going to reflect and pour out of us. As we live in a relationship with God, guess what happens? The more time we spend with God in fellowship with the Lord, the Lord begins to shape us and we become like Him. And we begin to reflect His nature and His character. And so as we spend time with the God who loves, we begin to love. We'll never stir up the faith inside of ourselves, brothers and sisters, and we'll never stir up love inside of ourselves. Love is something we receive. We love because why? He first loved us. And so if you're having struggles with loving those that are around you, then the answer isn't to try harder, be better, or do better. It's to receive better. Something is wrong with your inflow of love from God if you've got a problem with your outflow of love with others. So Paul says faith looks like love. And love, we'll see, is, self-init- is initiated within that person. It comes from God, right? But God is the one who initiates love. He didn't wait for us to get ourselves right. We'll never be able to get ourselves good enough to earn God's love. And so in our lives, we, we shouldn't be sitting around waiting for the person that we're commanded to love to get themselves together. We're supposed to love as we have been loved. 
We're also supposed to love selflessly. We're supposed to love sacrificially. Because that is the outpouring, the outflow of faith in Christ. And so faith alone in Christ alone is the only source of our hope and our security, and it's what changes our lives. And that faith looks like patiently, eagerly, patiently waiting. It looks like being led by the Spirit. It looks like being active in love. And so just final thought, final question is we live in a world of mixed messages. And Paul in this passage of Scripture makes the message so incredibly clear that if you're trusting in anything but Jesus alone, then you are on a path of hopelessness and condemnation. My question to you is, number one, have you put your faith in Christ alone? And if you have, then my question is, are you living in front of the world in such a way that you're sending a mixed message? Because mixed messages leave people paralyzed. And we're living in a world of mixed messages, and there are so many Christians that are living out. They come to church and they declare, my faith is in Christ alone. But then when they talk with their friends and when they talk with themselves and as they live their lives, they're actually living out a dependence upon me. Trusting in what I do. Trusting in what I don't do. Calling other people to legalism and to so many different things that are less than Christ. Paul would remind you, and the Bible constantly reminds you, come back to the gospel. Come back to trusting in Jesus. Not in yourself. Not in a system. Not in a, a religion. Not in an action. But simply in Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you walking by the Spirit? Are you loving others well? Are you waiting, looking for God every moment of every day, alert to his presence and to his leading? If not, then I invite you right now, just bow your heads, close your eyes, and go before the Lord and say, God, I want to stop trusting in me. God, I want to trust in you. Would you show me how I can depend upon the Spirit? Would you teach me to love well? Would you manifest yourself that I might eagerly wait upon you each and every day? Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in the way that you need to turn again to the gospel. And I'll come back and close this in a moment.